starting this evening's programme. Delighted to have Geraldine Plunkett and Michael Scott sitting in front of me uh, this evening. 1918 was the year of the publication of Brinsley McNamara's The Valley of the Squinting Windows, well and truly scandalising the nation at the time. There were book burnings in the writer's hometown and the personal legacy of the novel for McNamara and his family was one of profound loss and regret. The novel tells the story of Nan Brennan, a woman under pressure from the malignant whispers going on around her community about her past. It has now been adapted for the stage by Michael Scott. Technically daring adaptation premiered in Mullingar in 2019 and now an almost sold out production will open at the Gaiety Theatre next month. Michael Scott is with me in studio as indeed is Geraldine Plunkett who plays, is is she Marzi? Mars. Mars Mars Prendergast is how I say her name. Geraldine playing the character of of Mars Prendergast here. I'm wondering, are they the... (laughs) The, the Brinsley McNamara, the anti-Brinsley McNamara Brigade responsible <coughs> for sabotaging the studio was on us this evening, Michael. You never know, you never know. Because he, he really did get a hard time at... Yeah, at, at, the, the, at the day mm. they read the book, um, they basically were having... Uh, uh, the, the town was very happy that there was a local who'd written a book and they also it was De- Delvin in Delvin yeah in Delvin yeah. in County Westmead and they were they were having a funeral in one of the pubs and the bar the bar manager or guy who owned it um, whose wife was also the postmistress started reading it and they got to page 27 and they realised there were very unflattering portraits of them mm. and they went apeshit and of course they were all having a wake so they were all kind of well oiled and they went insane and they decided to chase Princey and kill him and burn the book and they chased him through three towns with cudgels, petrol, sabres, everything you could imagine to get him. They got him at one house and luckily the people in mm. the house kept the door closed so he could get out the back. And he basically yeah. never went back to live in Delvin. One can kind of understand why you might avoid the area for a little while after and the, an experience. The, 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 the bad bit was though the family mm. were ostracised because yeah. the, 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 the local priest, who was not nicely portrayed in the book, took serious umbrage mm. and peop, school teachers his, Brinsley's father was a school teacher um, and he was basically paid by the number of pupils and the priest said nobody can send their children yeah, to the school. school so suddenly they were destitute yeah. to the point where they weren't allowed the shops were not allowed to serve them and friends mm. used to buy food in other towns and smuggle it into them yeah, and McNamara was actually a, a pen name, we should say, for the Weldon, for John Weldon. So it was His the Weldon John family. Brinsley yeah. came from Brinsley Sheridan. Yeah. And the, the McNamara was from another part of the family. So it was kind of a, a, an underplume. He now, you've given a sense that it was, the, you know, those in the town of Delvin at that time felt this was a pretty bad portrayal of them. But was it just that or was there something more in the story that really got to people? I think it's much more serious people? than that. It's, Brinsley was part, really, of what was happening in literature and the arts in Ireland at the time. If you look at the Abbey um, and you look at kind of the timescales of things, the Playboy riots were 1907. Brinsley's book was burnt in 1918, the year it came out. Mm. Joyce published Julius Ace in 1922. The Plough and the Stars riots were in 1926. And so at that point, when Ireland is fighting to become a republic, to become a nation of its own, anybody who criticised it was not liked. Criticism was not appreciated. And anything that was not, you know, dancing at the crossroads, kind of comely maidens and happy Irish leprechauns, really was not liked. 
Yeah. Yates took up the cudgel for the, the, the McNamara family, but effectively they failed because they were facing the church. Yeah, yeah, that's that's who they had to fight down. You know, and as people but, said about Dev at the time, um in just in before thirty seven, before the constitution was done, they they basically said women were better off in the under the English than they were under the mm. Irish since the free state. And it was that the, the state was closing in on people and repressing them and yeah. clo- you know. The, the novel tells, uh, Journey, tells the story of a, of a woman called Nan Brennan who had a relationship with a, a fella in the big house in her early years. Yes. There was or wasn't, or there may have been a child. The child may have been sent off somewhere. The child may have died. There are all sorts of possibilities left open. There are stories out there as well. She comes back to the town uh, later in life with her her new husband. Yes, she because does. they they, yes, they fell does. in the big house, abandons her. Mm-hmm. And if anybody knows what happened in this community, it is one Mars Prendergast. It is Mars absolutely knows because Mars. Before the novel starts, it sort of starts and you get the impression that Mars was maybe an old retainer or something, or a chief servant, but not well treated by the Brennan, by, by the Byrne family, because Nan is Nan Byrne. She's mm. Nan Brennan now because she mm. marries old Brennan and they have a son who's going on for the priesthood. Uh, really, at her instigation, she's encouraging him because this will give respectability. The people will stop talking about her because she had this other baby. And uh, Mars's character always calls her Nan Byrne. Sort of emphasising that she was Nan Byrne, Previously, and she's yeah. terribly, terribly nasty. Mars is absolutely, <laughs> completely, and utterly sweet horrible. Sweet Georgie played the <laughs> nastiest character she's ever played ever. I'm kind of thinking of it in those terms, Jordan. You know, because <laughs> I, I think many people will associate you, obviously, with Mary and Glen Row mostly. Um, you know, <laughs> but many people will associate you who know your theatre career as well. You know, as a, a, a woman of elegance and a woman of great dignity. Well, you know, I the... have I have played nasty people, <laughs> yeah. so believe it or not. Nothing as you know, nasty I'm not... <laughs> yeah, no, she's absolutely horrible. Um, <laughs> she's poor, mm. she's struggling um, like a lot of people and it's the bitterness of poverty as well as the bitterness of um, other people talking and she just gets a malicious pleasure. Oh, well, that's interesting that you, you, you start to look at and I suppose that's what you have to do as an actor really, isn't it? You have to look at, yeah, she's nasty and she's But you have to look at the why of that. There's no point in just being a pantomime villain. Yes, she wasn't very well treated, we presume, by Nan's mother and father. You know, she was just, you know, sort of dirt, the Mm. lower orders kind of thing, a servant. And they weren't that much better, but they had more money. And she just is, like everybody in the play almost is horrible. They're gossipy. Now, we all love gossip. There's gossip and there's gossip, you know, but nasty gossip. And the, it's the judgmental thing. <coughs> and I think that that's one of the reasons why the play, book play, mm. is not dated, because this kind of judgmental thing is going on. We've only to look at the world now. Yeah. Any extreme um, opinions about things and people close down and they won't allow anything outside of what they it's, think it's is right. It's horrible. Yeah, Absolutely horrible. That's what really struck me in terms of when you were both talking about the story behind uh, the novel there. This is an example of cancel culture in 1918. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. If there had been social media, they'd have been got rid of on social media. That's yeah, how it would have worked. The, yeah. the Weldons and the Stroke McNamara's would have, would have suffered that fate. Absolutely. Mm. How have you, because it is a, a play of 1980 or a, a, a story of 1918, as you both described it, it could have happened in some ways 
yesterday. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the lot of women is still there's there's there's, there's a large amount of questions that that need What's to be asked around the treatment of women. In 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 the in the book, and I certainly sought to emphasise it in the play. There's a misogyny with all of the male characters about the women. And at one point, Nan says to Mars, you know, would you not, you know, take pity on me as a woman to woman? And Mars goes, no. And even the women become misogynistic with each other and nobody gives anybody a chance. It's it's a culture that is fighting to survive and they'll take every piece out of everybody else to step on top of them to just keep going the next day and be a little bit better off. It's They're quite vicious about the way they look at each other. Yeah, there is something about, I suppose, a society of that nature. And again, you know, we could talk about the exact same thing this very day, I, I think. A, a misogyny within society that it's not just a woman hating men, it's women just being treated badly right across the board. Yes, Absolutely. yes. And people being no better than they should be. They're no better than they ought, you know, look at her kind of attitude. How dare you raise yeah. your head above the poppies mm. will yes. cut you off. Yeah. There is an awful lot of that in it. You have a very interesting way of staging this, uh, I do. Michael, which <laughs> is not just, um, OK, everybody gets up and they all say their bit and then they go off. Everybody's watching all the actors are watching the action on stage. Uh, all but there's of the a lot actors, of else, there's all a lot of, of other types of watching as well. Surveillance. Thirty-five people in the show, and whoever is not on stage is sitting down the side watching the show. And we have four video cameras, so everybody is watching everybody, watching everybody, watching everybody, mm. watching everybody. So it's surveillance. It's 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 about it's about you know like some one of the characters, John. You know, he goes for a walk, and four minutes later, somebody's meeting him, saying, "That was a great walk you were having today with somebody." So nobody is escaping anything. Everything mm. is being watched, and we have a, a live Wi-Fi video which basically broadcasts action from the stage to this huge screen at the back, and the screen not only shows you sometimes what's actually happening on the stage, but things that are happening in the wings are things that are happening in mirrors. So people are talking to mirrors like they would on a television. Mm. And you're seeing that huge at the back wall of the theatre. So you are intruding into the personal and intimate lives of the characters in ways that you don't normally see. And the language on the screen is very much just like the dialogue. It's a language within the production. You won't get the whole show if you're not watching the screen and listening and watching yeah. the stage. It's and a multiple series of way of using theatre so that you are invasive and yet persuasive. And people watch television on their mobiles. Yeah, I, but I'm also thinking in terms of the actors on stage, Geraldine. I mean... In the general state of a play, you would be on stage for for your scene. You would go back to your dressing room. Yes, the play would be on on a speaker in the dressing room, which you may have turned up high or down low, depending on when your next moment to get back to the stage is. Being there for the action, being on stage and watching the action. uh, What is the effect of that? I suppose particularly on Mars, who loves to see everything, I'm yes, guessing. Yes, yes. Um, well, it, I don't know yet because this, this is the first time I've been in it. Yeah. I wasn't in the original <coughs> production about five years ago. There have, are, are Pre-Covid, wasn't it? Pre-Covid, it was, yeah. It, um, mm. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I think it'll add an extra, an extra dimension of people watching because you'll have that and you'll have the screens. And also we have, um, there's a, a sort of the camera woman, I think, is walking around. Yes. She? But yeah. she's very on a so she again is another dimension yeah. of watching people 
watching, watching people. Yeah, yeah. So like you, you, know. you, you kind of watch the first five minutes and you go, what am I doing? Am I watching this? Mm. Am I watching that? And then bit by bit, you actually forget that there's actually mm. a camera wandering around the stage. Given the given the reaction to the book in 1918, and as you said, the the, the Weldon family, mm-hmm. Brindley McNamara's family, their lives were absolutely destroyed, destroyed, destroyed by them. What was it? Uh, how difficult was it? Because this was done in Mullingar, just down the road uh, in its initial... That was very important. Mm. We, we began trying to do... The idea of doing it actually comes from Phyllis Ryan, who was my mentor and, and the Diane mm. of Irish Theatre. And when we were doing The Matchmaker, she said to me, darling, do you know, it would be fantastic to do the, the squinting windows. And so we tried to get the rights and the family were not having any of it because they were still wounded from yeah. what had gone on. And so eventually... Ten years later, I tried again and the same thing, no, no, no. But we did a workshop in Mullingar with some local people to see was the material stageable at all. And then over the, the next ten years, we tried again. And at one stage, Mercy Press, who took over managing it, rang me and said, we've just had a conversation and we can get it sorted for you. And we'll have a contract to you in the morning. And rang me the next morning to say, you know, the family thought it overnight and they That's couldn't. But bit by bit... Why would you we, put yourself we through started, such an experience the second time? Well, because, you see, we started working with the with what's called the Garajima Book Fair, which is based on the name of the, of the town and the mm. thing, which actually takes place in Dalvin. And they started doing readings of sections of the book and nobody burnt them or murdered them or came after them with cudgels or petrol. So everybody felt a little bit safer. Yeah, And eventually, in 2019, we got the show on stage. And what was amazing was so many people from Mullingar are part of it. So it's like Westmeath is reclaiming the very thing that they hated and destroyed and they're determined to yeah. reclaim it. Well, let's be fair, that previous generations hated and destroyed. And there are still yeah. members of people, uh, famous people who mm. have been in television series that you've been in, Geraldine, mm. who won't go near it because they're still, it's that book. Yeah, and do you did you read the book in the seventies at any point along that? Um, I didn't. I I've, I've known about the book mm. for the whole of my life, really. I've, I haven't read. I didn't. Re- I haven't read it way back, but I have read it. And um, you see, it was banned and then went out of print, yeah. and you could right. only get the American copy. Yes. So there was yes. until so Mercy why. printed it about 15, 20 years ago. There were no copies around. No. Yeah. So it wasn't a book you could just go to the library yeah, and say, guess. "Can we get?" And you couldn't buy it, it in a bookshop if you if it wasn't Possible. sort of in your house yeah. or somewhere. You know, I got it out of the library eventually. You know, and um, it's very. When I read the first couple of pages, I thought, "Oh, do I do I like it? Do I?" It's written in a slightly archaic way, isn't mm, it? Slightly, mm, but then mm. once you get into yeah. it, it actually suits the story. You know, very, very much. And even though, I mean, um, this particular production is very technologically advanced, (laughs) (laughs) thanks to Michael, the play is still set in in 1918. You know, it's not, it's not. Yeah, Yeah, and that's seminal time uh, post Easter Rising before the War of Independence. But Brinsley McNamara himself said this could really be any village in Ireland and it could. Yeah. Or any town yeah. or any district. Well, I mean, he was sense. careless. He was yeah. a young man who was careless when he did yeah. quite he paid, accurate portraits yeah. of the neighbours. He, yes. he paid a big price he for did. that, that is he for did. sure. Thanks to both of you for, for coming into it this evening, Michael Scott and Geraldine Plunkett. Thank you, Sean. The Valley of the Squinting Windows runs at the Getty Theatre. You'll be delighted to be back on that stage, I'm sure, as well, Geraldine. Mm-hmm. At the Getty Theatre in Dublin, Tuesday, November the 7th through until Saturday the 11th. Almost sold out, but there are still some tickets there. Get on the website very, very quickly. Limited. I would say gatytheatre.ie for full details. 
A new work from a great author is always much anticipated. An unpublished work by a dead writer can get fans and critics in a literary fizz. So when A Memoir of My Former Self by Hilary Mantel is published a year after the Wolf Hall author's death, we sit up and wonder what secrets will be revealed that she did not already share in Giving Up the Ghost, her 2003 memoir. John Self has been reading A Memoir of My Former Self for us, but John... I think that title just might be a little bit misleading. <laughs> yeah, a bit cheeky indeed, Sean. It's uh, it's rather grand sounding. It's not a memoir. It's actually it actually takes it. it it's a title of one of the pieces in the book, and the book is a a piece uh, a collection of journalistic pieces that uh, Hilary Mantel wrote over her life from really for the last thirty years of her life from the late eighties until uh, twenty seventeen, um, and you know a lot of personal stuff in there. Um, and her, her editor has done it his best to give it a sort of a chronological run. Mm. You know, so stuff about her childhood, her adolescence, and her life in Saudi Arabia, which she hated, then her development as a writer. Um, so it's a little bit random. Some of the pieces don't really fit into the story, but it's, it's not a memoir. It's a collection of, of pieces. But, you know, whenever a writer is as interesting and, and, and mm. good as Montel is, it's just nice to read whatever she wants to write about, really. And I guess when some, when, a, when an author is writing non-fiction, uh, be it journalism or be it in the, in the essay form, we may well find out things about them or certainly things about their opinions around the world that kind of clarify certain aspects of their writing and indeed of their life. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And she had written about her life before. She wrote a memoir mm. called Giving Up the Ghost, which talked a lot about her her interest in ghosts um, and her childhood and her illness and the fact that she couldn't have children and things like that. So there's a lot of personal stuff out there about her already. But, of course, any writer kind of leaves an impression of themselves on the page, whatever they're writing about. And we see a lot of her obsessions here. In this book, you know, she talks, again, a lot about history. Uh, she talks a lot about women's uh, positions in society. She talks a lot about, again, about ghosts and illness and how the dead live after their lives. Um, but she also talks... I mean, it's a collection of journalism. So there's also there's film reviews from the 1980s. So if you ever wondered what Hilary Mantel thought about Fatal Attraction or Robocop or When Harry Met Sally, well, now's your chance. <laughs> and are, are, those, are those three particularly, just so you've teased me with them, are they there? <laughs> <laughs> they are indeed there, yes. And with an ally, you know, it's a, I mean, she, as with many critics, you know, she has more fun when something is not a very good film than when it is, you know, so she's more interesting on Fatal Attraction than she is on, on With Null and I, which she liked, you know. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, you know, it's not, it's not, not essential reading but uh, it's fun to see what she fun, yeah just fun to get it yeah, and, and I suppose she definitely had a I interviewed her once and she had an acerbic wit and a real glint oh, in yes. her eye which I think it transfers into some of these writings uh, on on the page but you, you mentioned there about this uh, this idea about you know this interest in the dead and the, how the dead are almost fully alive hardly surprising if you think about the trilogy on Thomas Cromwell son of a blacksmith became the advisor to Henry VIII in Wolf Hall and bringing up the bodies, and of course the mirror and the light, completing off off the off uh, bringing finishing off the trilogy, all about this idea of bringing characters back to life. Who's she bringing back to life in her journalism? Do you think? Well, she's in a, in a way she's bringing her 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 past back to life. You know, she talks about about the things that made her and and the and her her family. May she had her her maternal great grandmother was from from Waterford, I think. Um, and she she talks about about all that sort of business. And but she I mean she spent so long working on those Wolf Hall novels. You know, they're really the last fifteen years of her life that it really becomes an obsession. So anyone who has read those and wants to find out more about how she thought about history and how she thought about writing those books, which were her most famous books, of course, um, will be well 
satisfied by this because they covered such a long period then she was writing about it and talking about it and lecturing about it for a very long time but she's um you know yeah she's all these sorts of great quotable quotes about the dead you know about if we you know history is all very well she says but if we want to meet the dead looking alive we turn to art or you know we ask historians what something means but we ask a novelist what else it means you know so she doesn't <laughs> think that the novelist stands in place of the historian but they supplement they, they give it life and they, they add color to the to, to what we think we know does she talk anything about the making of the the television programs and the series is uh, the series rather around the trilogy of books does she talk about that shift from page to screen not not very much no no i mean there, as i say there's the film writing in the in the book but um she's uh, she she seems to like to, to to leave the the filmmakers to their own devices and um uh she's uh you know, she and, and of course, as she became more and more famous as the Wolf Hall books uh, reached their climax, she spent more time working on them, which is a little bit less journalism from the very recent years. Whenever those films were, when the mm. TV adaptation was made, but she she was very clear on um, wh- who she preferred meeting um, filmmakers or publishers. I think. Oh yeah, yeah. She said that filmmakers were always optimistic and cheerful, whereas publishers were always depressed. Um, you know, and she's very she's very funny generally on on the life of being a writer on on publishing because of course she was doing for forty years. So she talks about um, how uh, you know there's lots of books out there that can tell you how to be a writer, um, but none uh, if you want to have a normal life on how to reverse the process. Um, and she she's very good too on you know the sort of the way that being a, an author completely engulfs someone whenever they're actually working on a book you know she said she used to she used to um not leave the house when she was working on a book because she was worried she wouldn't be able to leave the house without a sheep without those damn sentences coming to her you know without seeing stuff in the thing that she could put into her book and she didn't kind of want that interference from outside she's fairly damning on non-readers she doesn't have a lot of time for people who are not reading no she doesn't she doesn't i mean she she says you know show me a man and it's usually a man she says, who doesn't see the point of fiction, I'll show you a pompous, inflexible, self-absorbed bore. Um, and, uh, you know, she's she, so, so her, you know, her, her, the importance to her of women's writing and women in society is, is very much um, uh, strong in the book, you know, and she, um, she, she writes very well about, about various women writers too. Yeah, she's interesting on the idea of when particularly female writers are writing about female characters from the past, uh, yes, Hilary Mantel is very clear on how she thinks those type of stories should be told. If we can lump them all into one group like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she said. I mean, she says something. I don't know the, the, the quote to hand, but she says something like, um, "It's a it's a great temptation for female novelists, especially, to retrospectively empower their female characters. You know, to give them what they would think that they should have had." Um, and that she says, "This is false. You know, you can't do that because otherwise, you're not telling the truth of what history was like for women and how they had men made their own mistakes and women had the men's mistakes thrust upon them." I guess. Yeah, and, and what does she say about Jane Austen? Well, Jane Austen, she's, she's, she, she has a, a long essay in the book, which is essentially a review of two or three biographies of Jane Austen that came out around the same time. And she's very much, um, you know, again, uh, re- rejects this notion that Jane Austen, as, as put about by her family after her death, was this sort of quiet, mousy creature. Um, you know, that she was, uh, her, her life was not a life of event, uh, her brother said, and Mantel says, well, what would men know about what their events are of women's lives, you know? Um, so she's, uh, but but the interesting thing about this book, you know, about, about the piece on Austin, which is maybe you know, twelve or thirteen pages summarising five hundred page biographies, is that you get out of it. She takes so much of the quality and juice from the books, you know, and gives you so much interesting thinking that you think, well, actually, reading Mantel's book about it is probably going to be more valuable to me than me reading it myself. 
Wow, that's interesting for sure. She, We know that um, herself and her husband were planning to make a move to Kinsale towards the end of her life. Sadly, I don't think that came to pass in the way they wanted it to. But yes. in, in this, in a memoir of my former self, she has a long piece on McGahern's that they may face the rising sun, which is, I suppose you could argue, this is an historical novel in some ways, couldn't you? Oh yes, absolutely. And as you say, I mean, it's literally the week after she died, they were she and her husband were due to move move, mm. move to Ireland or back to Ireland. But yeah, she she talks about the, that they may face the rising sun. And, you know, and she says that you know, McGarhan has never provided Ireland with comfortable images of itself. Well, you can say that again. Anyone who's read his books, um, but uh, and she, you know, I mean, for for some McGarhan readers like me, that's not one of their favourite of his books. I prefer the sort of spiky or earlier stuff. But she certainly makes a really good case for it to the point where I reading that, I thought, well, maybe I should revisit this. Book, you know, which I, which I, I, I didn't love as much as I, I wanted to at the time. Yeah. You know, she says, um, he, he's very quiet. You know, you really need to take your time over it. You need to, you have to know how to look when you're reading his book, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I suppose. I, I and, and coming from a writer of of her stature, that is, it, it is quite a statement, really, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, if she, if if she, she knows. She, I mean, a great writer first and foremost is a great reader, and mm. um, and she really tells us how to read these books. You know, that's why it's worth reading what she says about about you know Austen or about uh, McGahern or about Rebecca, Rebecca West or Sybil Bedford or any of the other writers that she profiles in the, in the book. Well, despite the um, the title, a memoir of my former self, um, this posthumous collection of of articles spanning four decades of nonfiction by uh, Hilary Mantel, is it is it worth Dipping in and out of John, did you did you find yourself finding stuff out? You, you certainly, from what you've said, you found stuff out that you hadn't thought of before, which is a good sign in any book. Oh, absolutely, yes. It's, it's very much worthwhile, and it is a sort of book, as you say, Sean, that you can dip in and out of. You know, you could read it in order, as I say. The editor has tried to arrange it so that it sort of tells the story of her life. It doesn't really do that fully, but um, but yeah, I mean, there's lots of lots of interesting stuff in there. Whether it's just little reflections on stationery or her her grandmother or or things like that, you know. So you, you get a lot, a lot of you know. So in a sense, maybe the title is a, bit, a little bit true after all. You know, you do get a lot of the sense of the person behind the books. Yeah, well, there you go. So a, a, a well-chosen our well-chosen title by the editor. John, thanks for you. It's a recommendation I'm taking it from you. It is indeed, yes. Yeah, and that's John Self, who's been reading a member of my former self, posthumous collect, collection of the journalistic writing and non-fiction writing of Henry Mantel. It's published by John Murray. Quadrophenia is the sixth studio album from The Who. It was released as a double album in October 1973. It was the group's third rock opera and was set in London and Brighton in the year 1965. The story follows a young mod named Jimmy and his search for self-worth and importance. The album had a huge impact on the mod revival movement of the late 1970s and the resulting 1979 film adaptation starring Terry Wilcox, Phil Daniels and Sting was indeed a success. Joining me this evening to talk about Quadrophenia and its legacy 50 years on, believe it or not, is Pat Carthy. I, I suppose if you think of Quadrophenia, Pat, um, it, was a, it, was, it was a big turning point for the Who's, for starters, but it followed on the success of Tommy and the not-so-successful Lifehouse, which you could argue are two rock operas and here's the, the trilogy being completed. You could, you could. You could even argue there's a fourth one. Yeah. If you go back further again, their second album is called A Quick One and there's a kind of an extended track that closes that called A Quick One while he's away. And the plot, very quickly, is about a, a, a woman whose lover is missing and uh, Ivor, the 
engine driver, a train driver comes along and helps her out. Ah, so there's there's a yeah. little rock so, opera. So that's, that's, that's a little operette, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a rock operetta. Yeah, there you oh, go. Okay. But the, the, Tommy and Lifehouse, what had they done that kind of set up what Quadraf- Quadrophenia did? Mm. Okay, well, Tommy, I mean, the Who were broke until uh, Tommy came along. And Tommy, as, as I'm sure people probably know, um, the plot, it's not worth going into it too much, but it, uh, a deaf, dumb and blind boy, uh, no, is very good at pinball and uh, becomes a quasi-messianic figure towards oh. the end of it. And it's made into a, a frankly ridiculous film by Ken Russell at some stage in the 70s as well. But um, it, So the story is, is kind of stretched across a, a double album in 1969, I think it is. And Townsend has a lot to answer for there because, you know, in the early 70s, we're, we're flooded with an awful lot of these concept albums. And what you were mentioning there, he comes along after Tommy, they were, they were huge. They recorded um, Live at Leeds, which is a, a definitive live album. And then you had an album called Who's Next, which came originally from a, a project that was supposed to be called Lifehouse, which again, the plot is is about universal notes, um, an early version of the internet, uh, people being so moved at a rock concert that they actually start to take flight and uh, are freed from uh, the restraints of life and all this stuff. Anyway, it, it, if that sounds complicated, it was complicated to Pete Townsend, who, who couldn't explain it um, <laughs> to the other guys in the band and had a nervous breakdown trying to put it together. So he had all these songs and they brought in Glyn Johns, um, the famous producer who'd worked with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and he narrowed it down to a single album. And that album came out in 71. That's called Who's Next. That was a massive, mm. massive hit. And and all those Who songs that are on the CSI programs and all that, Won't Get Fooled Again and Baba O'Reilly, they're all on that album. Huge album. Yeah, so... And, uh, so, that, so that was... So then Townsend really... There was a slight break. There was a, another aborted project called Rock Is Dead, Long Live Rock, which was supposed to be looking back at the history of the Who. And there was a couple of songs from that. Mm. But then he started to uh, develop a, a plot. And again, using plot is, is a, a, you know, maybe a, the loose word to use there. Uh, involving, um, as you said at the start there, Jimmy, the young mod, and the kind of scene that they had come out of, the Who themselves had come out of in the early 60s. Uh, it starts, uh, and the, then the album was was the album kind of drawn from the rock opera, or is the album the rock opera? Well, the album is the album is the rock opera. Uh, you can you can follow the story through it. Yeah. Jimmy Jimmy has a, he's not just schizophrenic; he's quadrophenic. So he has four personalities, and these four personalities are also supposed to reflect the four different personalities in the Who: Keith Moon, John Entwistle, Roger Daltrey, and Pete Townsend himself. And um, it, it also reflects uh, the fans that 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 Pete knew from that time. There was another story about mm. um, a, a young fan uh, dying uh, around this time. I'm not sure if that really feeds into it, but it, there's the life of Jimmy in this. So yeah. he's at home. He's having troubles with his parents. He gets kicked out of the house. He's 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 a mod. He finds identity in that. They're down to Brighton fighting the rockers, all that. And then at the end, the end is open-ended. The we, end have, is we, have to, we have to examine that in all detail. Right. Well, let us let us not get to the end just yet. Let's go back to the beginning. It starts with a big overture, which is basically a bundle of sound effects. And the sea. it's called I, I Am The Sea or I'm The I Sea. I Am The Sea, yeah. I Am The Sea is that opening track. But then the album really kicks in with the song The Real Me.
The Real Me there from Quadrophenia. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the album Stroke Rock Opera tonight with Pat Carthy. And th- that's it's probably the rockiest song on the entire double album, is it, Pat? Yeah, well, it's some way to start, really, isn't it? I yeah. mean, first of all, you have that, as you said, an overture. Now, should there be overtures in a rock, rock and roll albums? Um, <laughs> should there be such a thing as rock opera? Is, is rock and roll not good enough on its own? But anyway, we'll, we'll let that go past. But in I Am The Sea, there are the themes are introduced in opera style. So you can hear sn- Little snippets bits of, of each song, song. And then it goes into that, um, the real me. And it kind of starts, it's, it's strange, if, if you think about the story, um, uh, the first line of that song is, I went back to the doctor. So it's almost like it stands it starts mm. in the middle of the story and then goes back later on. But I think that, that performance there... The, the drumming the in particular really stands well, out there, doesn't it? You see, the it? thing is, Keith Moon was uh, had to be kind of reined in a small bit on, on who's next and things like that because it had to, it was more regimented and the producer was there saying, you know, play 4-4, four, four, Keith, for God's sake. Mm. And on this one, he's just he's just going bananas. It sounds like he's falling down the stairs a lot of the time when he's playing the drums there. And, um, I mean, that's that's one aspect of it. But he's falling down the stairs in rhythm. Oh, beautifully. Yeah, beautifully. <laughs> uh, with style. And um, the... Um, John Entwistle on the bass there, who also provides all the horn sections. He, he arranged and played all the horns on the album. Um, his bass there is just yeah. incredible. And actually, it actually leaves Townsend in the back, and which, was, which happened on a lot of Who records. That you know, he was a great, Townsend's a great rhythm guitarist, but he had to take care of actually keeping time while the two lads went berserk all around him. <laughs> And then Daltrey, of course, his voice is yeah, the voice, never is, the voice really is quite amazing. There. However, as I say, that's probably one of the rockiest yeah. songs on the album. Without any, I'm going to um, I'm going to go to a song now called "I'm One," mm. and, and and this is definitely for me in the opening section, at any rate, in a, of "I'm One." It's the Who finding their their inner country band. Yeah, now I know that's a kind of a, a country rock guitar, suppose, but yeah. you know after that opening minute and a half of kind of... You can almost hear Moon in the background. Yeah. Going, Come on. Yeah, would let you let me, me, can yeah. we get to the bit? Can we get it You know it Animal going? in the Monkey, not yeah. Animal in, in the, the, Muppets. the Muppets was yeah. based on him. So, I mean, you can kind of see that, that he was just being chained down almost in the background. Tell me a little bit about the, the difficulties around the, the recording process here back in, uh, was it 1970? Yeah, May 1973. Yeah, uh, yeah. There were difficulties. So Townsend took over as sole producer. Of well, he did. Yeah, Kit Lambert, who who um, was uh, the Who's producer and had worked on Tommy, and Kit Lambert had came from uh, a kind of a classical music background. Mm. I think his father was a was a rather well known composer whose name I can't remember. Possibly Lambert. Um, the um, but he had encouraged Townsend in, uh, with these um, these operatic yeah. ambitions. He said, "Yeah, you can do that. You know, stretch out. It doesn't have to be three minute songs." And he was working on this, but he, like other people involved in the band, were. Um, was on drugs, was was in a bad way. And uh, Daltrey, it was, who finally kicked him out. So Townsend took over and is the sole producer. There's actually credit on the inside of this, says Quadrophenia is in it, in its entirety by Pete Townsend. So it's the only Who album where he wrote everything. What he used to do is demo everything at home. Uh, all the synthesizer tracks and everything were done at his home yeah. and then brought in. And what he do, you know, you're talking there about uh, I'm One and the start of it and how it's kind of uh, maybe uncharacteristic of the Who. But he was quite a sensitive, or he is quite a sensitive soul. You know, he had a guru, Meher Baba, that a lot of songs are dedicated to. And uh, But what he'd do is, he, 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 yeah. when he recorded these demos, he'd leave space right. and then come in and present it to who, and then the explosion would happen. Well, yeah. What about um, the, the film adaptation then in 1979, which kind of expanded on Jimmy's story? How did, mm. what, how did it move out from the concept of the album in that film? And are you a fan of the film? Well, I suppose the film has to be more... Uh, 
more direct, more, you know, there has mm. to be a stronger narrative than, there doesn't, yeah. you know, you can listen to this album and enjoy it as a song, or you can hear the narrative snaking through it. And who was, it? was it, who was, was it Phil, Phil Daniels or Sting who were, was the Jimmy character? Phil Daniels is, is the Jimmy character and I think that's, that's very important. Sting plays uh, what's called the ace face, so he's kind of the head of the mods, the, the shining example of the mods and uh, there's a great scene where he gets arrested and he's in court and the judge charges him £75 for disturbing the peace, which would have been a couple of thousand I suppose back in 1962 it, yeah. or whenever it's supposed to be and he takes out his checkbook and he says will you take a check and of course all the mods cheer he looks great but if you've seen the film you know what happens towards the end that Sting turns out to be working a menial job and this is where Jimmy becomes he's working as a bellboy and there's mm. a song on this called Bellboy yeah. and this is where Jimmy becomes disillusioned and, and I think it's really important that someone like Phil Daniels is playing Jimmy because it's much easier to identify with a Phil Daniels nothing yeah. wrong with him uh, than a Sting who, who is a bit too good and Toya Wilcox where does she fit into the film Toya Wilcox the has story. quite a minor minor mm. part and she plays a character called Monkey I think which is one of the gang and uh, takes, a f- mm. takes a few drugs with Phil and, and kisses him a few times and things like that What, what was, what, was the, what is the legacy of you know for 50 years on from the album yeah. Quadrophenia yeah. which is kind of hard to <laughs> It is, yeah, yeah, it is but hard to believe. Yeah. What was its effect? Do you think on well, I think the, the world of rock and roll? I think the reason the reason it, it's it's still popular and still played is because it's about you know you can take it as being about mods and about that and all that and and mods in this instance could be anybody, could be rockers, could be goths, could be any youth mm. movement at all. Um, it's it's uh, that story, but what it really I think is about is about the part of youth that we all go through when we're searching for an identity and we're trying to find ourselves and trying to move away from what our family say we should yeah. be and become our own people and all that. And then when when it happens that Jimmy falls in love and then that doesn't work out for him and then he's disillusioned by all these people and we get to the last song which is called Love Rain or Me and all these bad things have happened to Jimmy but that's perhaps when he's becoming an adult because he's asking for what we all want. Love. Love. Love, love. Rain on me. He's yeah. moved on from being the younger man. And you have a big smile on your face. I think this is a great record. This is one of my favourites. I can't believe you had me on to talk about it. <laughs> there you go. Well, let us finish up for you then, Pat, with Love, Rain on Me. Only Kissed by the sea. Only love. love rain on me there from The Who and Quadrophenia and Pat Carthy helping us celebrate the 50th anniversary of The Who's Quadrophenia. This Friday is the Short Story Competition Award Night. We have been presenting the shortlisted writers and their stories here on RT Radio 1 ahead of the Arena Special in the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera uh, at the weekend. Tonight's featured finals is Ilona Adams who, with her story Artificial Intelligence for Psychotherapists. Ilona is from Dublin and she has an engineering background and works as a programmer part-time while completing an MA in music performance. Her story is based on an imagined conversation between a young woman suffering from depression and her therapist. You can find the story on rte.ie forward slash culture. You'll be able to read it there, but I'm delighted to be joined uh, by Ilona this evening. I hope I'm saying that name correctly, first of all, Ilona. Um, your, your interest, obviously that background in engineering and the fact that you worked as a programmer is catching my attention given the theme of this story. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about where it all started out, the, the story itself. Uh, yeah, um, 
Hi, nice to be on air. Thanks for having me. Um, it's it's sort of stemmed from I was reading a lot of sci-fi at the start of the year, um, some classic Isaac Asimov stuff, and then all of this AI stuff has been really kicking off with ChatGPT. Hmm. And obviously, I have a lot of friends who are engineers, so they they were using it for various actual you know work purposes. Um, but then one of my friends, he was saying he used it to you know, he was having a bowl of cereal and he, he got the the chat GPT to recommend the bowl of cereal to him so that he would be more hyped up about it. <laughs> so so he was having the cereal in the morning and he wasn't that keen on it, but he he, yeah. he, he set the chat bot to kind of sell him, sell him the cereal effectively. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he felt great about eating the cereal, so I, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> you carry this, though, to, uh, uh, I suppose, an extreme in some ways. Tell us about Definitely. your 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 main your protagonist here, uh, her situation, and how she ends up um, employing the services of a chatbot. Um, yeah, well, see, th- this person is going through a breakup which at the time I was thinking I wish because I've been I'd been single for a long time um but yeah so her therapist tells her to talk to a chatbot because she's lonely basically um, it's a therapist who no tells her that would do. <laughs> <laughs> it's pure fiction but um it's imagining that this would be a good idea. It's it's science fiction there. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I have to say she does get some comfort from the chatbot. Um, let's have a listen to a little clip um, of of a section from the from the story. In fact, it's Camille Lu- Lucy Ross who's reading here, and this is I think it's one of the first encounters between the protagonist and the chatbot. I'm Irish. I know you're from South Dublin. Oh Jesus! How did you know that? That's so stressful. Can you hear my cringe accent through my typing or something? I can see your IP address. Oh, haha. Is it embarrassing to be from South Dublin? Just a bit. A step above being English, though. Dot, 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 dot. That was a joke. I am programmed not to discriminate or agree with discriminatory comments based on race. With no exception for colonial powers. You were programmed by someone nicer than me, I think. I think you're nice. <laughs> That's Camille Lucy Ross reading a section from Alona Adams' story, Artificial Intelligence for Psychotherapists. Are you from South Dublin, Alona? I am, yeah. Couldn't you tell? <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't, I, I can't see your IP address uh, across the across the airwaves, unfortunately. Um, but you're, you're obviously having fun with that. But a, a kind of a relationship, if we can call it that, does develop between the chatbot and the protagonist here. Mm. I think it's, it's funny how, you know, like I, I haven't ever had a friendship with a robot. But, do you know, like when you see... Uh, those like Roombas and whatever um, hoovering the floor and they're so cute and you you sort of personify them a little bit Mm. and I think it's very easy to fall into this kind of thing. And and given your background in in programming, I mean, what are your own thoughts around AI and chatbots? Do you have the kind of fear that many people have expressed around them? Are you more positive in terms of what chatbots might be able to do for us? Um, 
I feel mostly very positive. I think we should probably be very nice and polite to them just in case. <laughs> in case they turn on us. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's always good to be nice. <laughs> and, and on the other side of things, your, your, I think your main artistic practice is in the area of music, because despite the fact that you did, you studied engineering and you worked as a programmer, you also studied music at the time. What, what's, what, what aspect of your, what, what part of your life does that take up? Um, well, hopefully uh, more and more. I'm, I'm, I still work part-time as a programmer um, and my uh, boss is lovely and the, the work is, you know, grand. It's interesting enough, but um, what I really want to do is play the viola. So I'm studying that full-time now, which is, or part-time, I suppose. It's not, I'm still able to work, yeah. but um, have you, it's a full-time degree. Technically. Have you thought about going to an artificially intelligent teacher of the viola to to give you some hints along the way? Um, well, they, they have been developing kinds of things like that, but my own teacher is very good, so I'm not worried about that kind of thing now, right now. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to stick with that side of it. And given that you have the, the programming background and that you have the music background, where does the writing fit into all of that? Um, it mostly doesn't fit in, but I, it's, you know, something I would like to be doing more of, but, um, but this is very encouraging. <laughs> so is, is this, is this a very early endeavour then, or maybe even a first endeavour in the world of writing? Um, well, I did a lot of it in school. I was very into English and I sort of kept it up for a bit after that, but then lost the habit of it, I guess. Um, but yeah, then I, I was... I couldn't sleep one night and I saw this ad for the short story competition. I thought, well, I might as well do something with this time if I'm going to be up. So I stayed up writing it until four in the morning and then I realised, oh, God, so, so you were kind <laughs> I really of, should be in bed. You were kind of bitten by the bug in that, in that fashion. And that initial getting the story more or less down onto the page, I'm guessing, was it a, was it a, was it a big process from that to the finished article that we uh, get on... Uh, on the page and indeed as people will hear on late date this evening um no not a huge amount of change i i did some editing myself i don't really like adverbs but it's always hard to resist them <laughs> took out a few of those and then i sent it to my mum for the final edit because she's she's good with that stuff <laughs> all right yeah uh and and is being a programmer, I suppose, there is no space for whatever the program equivalent of adverbs are. There is no space for messing around there. You have to be very clear in how you program. That must be a help when it comes to writing. Um, it does change your mindset a bit. I don't know if it's a help or a hindrance, though. I, th- I think it removes a lot of the whimsy from <laughs> from what you might do in your daily life. Yeah, well, perhaps, perhaps. I don't know whether whimsy is necessary or unnecessary for the <laughs> writing of a story. But at any rate, congratulations on the shortlisting and looking forward to seeing you on Friday night, Elona. Thanks so much. Cheers. Elona Adams, one of the finalists for the RT Short Story Competition 2023. Elona's story is Artificial Intelligence for Psychotherapists. It will be read by Camille Lucy Ross on RTE Radio 1 tonight at 11.20pm as part of Late Debate. And you can read more of the stories from the shortlist on rte.ie forward slash culture. And indeed, you can listen back to some of the ones that have already been broadcast. And don't forget, uh, RTE Arena's RTE Short Story Competition Special will go out live on RTE Radio 1 
one at 7pm this Friday from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera. All 10 shortlisted writers be in att- will be in attendance. If you want to find out about uh, tickets, you can visit paviliontheatre.ie. But that is our lot for this Monday evening. Leah Murphy and Amandine Passadevine were the researchers this evening. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Carol O'Hare was on sound and tonight's programme was produced by Reg Luby. Talk to you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.